Greetings, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our discussion of a book by Dr. Kenneth M. Wilson. The book's title is Augustine's Conversion, from what he calls traditional free choice to what he puts in quotation marks as non-free free will. And oddly enough, the, the formal title, the binder title, is just Augustine's conversion, which might make you think of something other than his move from traditional free choice to non-free free will. But leave that to the side again, because we are working not on the portion of Dr. Wilson's book that discusses Augustine's theology, but on the subsection from pages 65 through 72 that discuss origin of Alexandria and origin of Alexandria is a interesting character in church history. He is an influential character. He's a profound thinker, a careful thinker, but not always on the side of later Christian orthodoxy. So not, not on, on every point would we think of, do you want the right or best answer? Look to origin. So keep that in mind, please, as we discuss this section. In some cases, we're going to be talking about what Origin says or doesn't say. But our goal is not to make Origin into a modern-day Presbyterian or Reformed person. We're not trying to make him into a modern evangelical. We're not trying to make him into a Protestant. He's none of those things. He's also not a Roman Catholic. He's not an Eastern Orthodox. He's not from this time period. And... It was interesting to hear uh, in today's, uh, from today's readings, one of the books we'll look at is Origen's Commentary on the Epistle to the Romans. So that, that's this book. And this is just the books one through five. I don't know if there's some additional books. I, I don't recall if there's some additional books or not, but in any event, this has what we need. And this volume, it's volume 103 of the Fathers of the Church series, has a translation of the commentary. So we will deal with that. We'll address it. I believe that the commentary on Romans is indeed a commentary on... The, it's the first English translation. The one we're reading is the first English translation. I believe that the... It's an English translation of a Latin translation. Uh, just wanted to double check that, but I believe so. So in its Latin translation, it exerts a significant influence on subsequent Christian thought. That's very true. I, I believe there may be bits and pieces of the commentary that do survive in Catenae or in some other form but I don't think we have a full copy of the Greek for that. That does mean we are going to be working with origin in a mediated form. And we're going to see, we'll be reminded as we get to that part, why that's significant. So let me jump first before I get into reading origin himself. Let me remind you of where we are in our reading. So I'm going to make uh, Dr. Wilson's book. This is page 66 quite large. And if you can, I'm not sure you can, you can't see my cursor, but in any event, you can see that there's a yellow post-it along the side. 
And the paragraph that begins, origin denies salvation can ever be attained by one's own merit, citing Jacob have I loved and Esau, uh, but Esau have I hated. Again, I do find it interesting, the use of quotation marks in this forum. Also, the citation we talked about last time is a bizarre citation for this quotation, uh, but it is what it is. Uh, it says he, he denies that any human, this is where we start today. He denies that any human receives grace as a merit because justification occurs by faith without works of the law. And here, Dr. Wilson cites the Romans commentary, uh, book three, section nine, book three of the Romans commentary, not you know, chapter three, verse nine of Romans. So as I said, I have the book itself, but to make things easier, I have prepared some slides that have the, the text of the book in a little bit maybe easier for you to read than me holding up the book to the screen. And this is the translation by Thomas P. Sheck. The notes are his, I believe. Sometimes the notes, he may get some of these footnotes from an earlier editor. I don't know. But in any event, the notes shouldn't be that critical to today's discussion in most cases. So we'll read what the relevant section is. This is section nine of book three. It says, where then is your boasting? It's excluded. Through what law? Through that of works? No, but through the law of faith. For we hold that a man is justified through faith without works of the law. And of course, that is just a quotation, as it says here, of Romans 3, 27 to 28. Once again, we often remind those who desire to give careful attention to the things that Paul has written to observe tenaciously that distinction about which we have spoken be above, namely how Paul, always in a discreet manner, now assails the circumcision group, now the uncircumcision, that is the Jews and Gentiles respectively. For if a trifling bit should escape the reader's attention, immediately the extremely narrow path to understanding will be thrown into disorder. The one point I'd like to just comment on this briefly is Despite where I disagree with Origen, I do find his acknowledgement of the complexity of Paul's writing to be something worthy of our agreement. We can say it is, it is sometimes hard to read. We can agree with that because the Apostle Peter himself said so. And I pause just for a moment here while I'm thinking of it to attempt to refresh things so that those who are following along through Facebook and who have a desire to post comments will be able to have me see their comments hopefully i'll be able to uh, hopefully i'll be able to see that although for some reason it's it's not immediately showing up to me right now so hopefully it is in fact actually working and we're actually streaming to facebook oh no here it is i found it sorry sorry for the delay and it should be good to go now in terms of being be able to see comments. So you can see in the, the from the Facebook logo that these are images. I'm not sharing them to everybody on Facebook, just, just using them for this presentation. Therefore, the apostle, as we said, so therefore the apostle had made known above what? And I should zoom back out for a moment so that we can zoom in again and scroll up. 
what advantage the Jew possessed and what value there was in circumcision. And he had taught that the oracles of God were first entrusted to them. So those oracles of God would be the scriptures of the Old Testament. That he, that's what he has in mind. And by these words, he had seemed to be eliciting boasting from the Jews with which they were accustomed to raise themselves up against the Gentiles. On the other hand, in what, had, what followed, he had countered that the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is for all who believe that there is no distinction, but all have sinned, both Jews and Greeks, and lack the glory of God and are justified through the grace and redemption which is in Christ Jesus. He himself is the uh, propitiatory through faith, and all who are of faith are justified by him. In this current passage, the apostle, as if establishing the conclusion of his previous arguments, now says, where then is your boasting? It is excluded. Through what law? That of works? No, but through the law of faith. For we hold that a man is justified through faith without works of law. He is saying that the justification of faith alone suffices so that one who only believes is justified, even if he has not accomplished a single work. Now, I can understand, of course, why Dr. Wilson is interested in this particular passage. And I would venture to guess that the reason why he's interested in this passage is because he wants to make his argument about justification by faith alone or something similar to that. So he says he denies that human, here's the, the, the claim that, that Dr. Wilson actually makes though. He says, he denies that any human receives grace as a merit because justification occurs by faith without the works of the law. So it is true that he does use that phrase here, that he uses the phrase justified through faith without works of the law. But what does Origen understand by it? He doesn't specifically deny that people receive grace as a merit. And it is a bit, it is a bit puzzling to understand why, where he gets this idea. Where does he come up with the idea that he doesn't give grace as merit? I suppose it's because Dr. Wilson is thinking about Origen's view on justification of faith alone and interpreting that to mean the Protestant doctrine of sola fide. And it's very tempting to do so. And indeed, there are ways in which Origen, in some places, seems to uh, seems to come before this Protestant notion. And, and there has been temptation by Protestant authors to interpret Origen this way. Not all Protestant authors do that, but some have definitely been tempted to do so. That it is important to be considerate to Augustine's own teachings on the matter, to think about what did Augustine, uh, not Augustine, uh, Origen, what, what are orig what's the rest of Origen? I mean, the same is true of Augustine, of course, but in this case, we're interested more in Origen. So, what does Origen indeed say about grace and merit and the relationship of them to each other? 
the tricky thing is there are different kinds of grace for origin. So here's where I start to quibble a little bit with Dr. Wilson. Obviously, he, this particular passage doesn't use the phrase that, that Wilson, the first part of the phrase that Wilson lays out. And when Wilson goes to uh, discuss this topic of origin a little bit farther, he goes on to cite Shaq and to disagree with Shaq. And that's fine. And people can disagree with each other. That's not a problem. Uh, but when it comes to his understanding of origin, he might benefit from considering the other material that Shaq lays out. So I'm not, not going to read through all of this. It wouldn't make sense for the, the scope of this program. Uh, but if we jump to page 28, this is in the in Shek's translation. It's the introduction to the translation. You can see that the Shek takes a lot of time to set up the discussion of what origin is saying, what are the targets he has in mind. If you've been following along, you may have heard me say something similar in previous episodes. One of the targets that origin has are these, what uh, Shek refers to here as Gnostic teachings, the, the trio of Marcion, Basilides, and Valentinus. These are people who are saying that there's some people have this salvific nature and some people have a uh, perditive nature, a, a nature that's just associated with loss. will only do that things that are associated with that and will go down that path. There's other ones who have a saving nature and who will just go down that path. And in their conception, this is something that people are kind of born with. They're either born on this path towards this inherently natural uh, path towards destruction or this inherently natural path towards righteousness. And it's understanding, it's understandable that those people, if they're trying to appeal to scripture, would appeal to Romans 9. Which is why Origen sometimes interacts with Romans 9. But he's trying to respond to those people. Sheck points out that there are a number of important considerations you have to take into account when you're thinking about origin in his own context. He comes before the Pelagian controversy. He's not responding to Pelagians. He's not responding to Augustinians. He's responding to Gnostics, and Gnostics have a very different way of looking at the scripture than either Pelagians or Augustinians later do. So some of the objections he's trying to address are things like whether people have an unchangeable nature that just proceeds in one way or another. And he rejects that idea in favor of what he calls free will. And some of these points that he raises, in fair, fairness to, I guess, people like Dr. Wilson, are less compatible with Augustine. On the other hand, there's other parts that are more uh, compatible with Augustine. And one of the chief problems is this one that's highlighted here in analysis, uh, section 15 analysis. He mentions that uh, there was some tradition that existed that explained predestination on the basis of God's foreknowledge. And Origen referred to seeing uh, calling being based upon foreseen merits. 
Now, if indeed that's accurate, then, you know, if, if that's an accurate statement, then the, this other discussion about faith, as opposed to works, doesn't necessarily pan out to a distinction between grace and merit. Instead, they can sort of walk hand in hand in, in some way for origin. And as you can see here, it says, uh, origin at times seems to speak of faith and conversion as a merit, which deserves to be counted for righteousness. And when Sheck says this seems to be, I think what Sheck is wisely doing is acknowledging the complexity of the analysis of origin. And at the same time, uh, McSorley, Sheck quotes from McSorley, and he provides this reminder that we have to be careful not to apply what Origen said anachronistically. And here it says, when the pre-Augustinian fathers argued that free will was necessary for merit or demerit, they were not seeking to extol the power of man to merit his salvation. They were simply taking seriously the scriptural teaching that God judges all men according to their works. And from this theological standpoint, from the revealed truth of the coming judgment of God, they insisted against their pagan contemporaries, Marcion above all, that God, that the God who judges is the good God, and the man, and that man had to have free will if a judgment of God is to be at all meaningful and just. And one understands that if they think of it as mere moralism or as an assertion of autonomous humanism. So so the problem is basically you're, you're taking a controversy from ancient times and applying some modern framework to it, and the result can be a bit uh, a bit odd. So there, as an example of the kind of tension that exists, you'll, you'll, he points out here that there's some parts that contain a strongly Augustinian passage, like the comments on Romans 4, 1 through 8. And uh, then at the same time, there's, uh, there's well, I think there's a couple more that he points out. But then I think he goes on to say, uh, Origen uses the expression justification by faith alone or something similar to that several different times. So some of the times, section 617 is Origen against justification by faith alone. And here he's uh, fighting again, uh, as it says, as it mentions at the bottom of uh, this page, uh, page 33, it says, while explaining Romans 2, 6, Origen polemicizes against the Gnostic doctrine of natures. That's that doctrine of natures again, this idea that there's just people are born with fixed natures and they just do things according to these natures. He doesn't agree with that. Uh, and that there's like one nature that just leads towards destruction and one nature that leads towards salvation and people are just bored with it. That's not Origen's idea. He thinks that's contrary to what scripture teaches and he's fighting that. Uh, but there are places where he seems to speak out against salvation by faith through faith alone. And he says um, that there's uh, essentially, when he, when he later speaks of justification by faith alone, it's clear, it says, it's clear that what he has added, a qualification of Pauline texts, which should be interpreted in light of his previous affirmation that justification is by both faith and works. And some of this tension may be the same kinds of tension that we see in 
you know, in other writers as well, because you'll hear people say we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith which is alone. Maybe there's some of that in origin, but maybe the tension is just different in origin, but there is still tension and there's still this seeming play that exists. Uh, there are passages that, here, that are cited and he goes back and forth and he explains which, which passages support the assertion of previous scholars and which not. Sorry, my throat's a bit scratchy. So I think uh, we could go on, as I mentioned, after going through these negatives, he comes to a section origin pro justification by faith. And then uh, this is the passage, this one that said, this is the in three nine, this is the passage that's mentioned by Dr. Wilson. And he says, this seems to see, nearly seems to be a formal contradiction to his words at two four. Let believers not entertain the thought that because they believe this alone can suffice for them. And when Origen tries to address this, he looks for scriptures to support it. He finds the thief on the cross and the woman who I think it was who uh, anointed Jesus' feet. Uh, I believe it's there. Yeah. And so it suggests that he can accept and even defend that phrase justification by faith alone, if it only means the initial gift of forgiveness of sins is received by faith alone and not because of works of the law and the sinner's first remission of sins is in view. So again, to if indeed, now maybe we'll get into another time how much we agree with Shek or not. But the point is, there's a lot of complexity to what Origen has to say about the subject. And he continues on to page 41. Uh, and he ends up sketching the view this way. It grants his idea of justification or remission is by faith alone and not by the works of the law. It grants complete forgiveness of all past sins, but not future. And justifi justification can be forfeited through laziness and negligence. And to put it another way, and in Origen's own words, the baptismal circumcision of the believer will be reckoned as the uncircumcision of unbelief if a Christian afterwards becomes a transgressor of Christ's law since faith without works is dead and the lot of the evil steward is with the unbelievers, yet the, that the qualifying epithet alone may be added to Paul's teaching on justification by faith provided that works of the law and works anterior to initial justification are envisioned as being excluded by the word alone and provided this is not misconstrued as through, though Paul were granting baptized believers a license to sin in the future. Quite a mouthful. However, that should lead us back to, I will go back all the way through these, hopefully to the very first page. Here we are. So the claim was he denies that any human receives grace as a merit because justification occurs by faith without the works of the law. He does say justification occurs by faith without the works of the law, but the other part of the sentence, he denies that any human receives grace as a merit, is odd. It's an odd statement. What would it mean for something to be grace that's received as a merit? And there's a sense, there is actually an interesting Augustinian maxim of he crowns 
this is it's quoted by Sheck at pages 32 to 33. You could go back through the, the video if you wanted to, to find it. But he says, uh, Verfaya, uh, actually, I don't know how to pronounce the name, Verfaili, uh, may be right to find in Origen's words here an anticipation of Augustine's dictum that therefore he crowns uh, with merit, when or by crowning their merits, you crown your own gifts. So, and it says that the uh, another passage of the commentary that supports the above interpretation, his comments on Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death, and calls attention to the fact that Paul does not go on to say in similar fashion, but the wages of righteousness is eternal life. Instead, he says, but the gift of God is eternal life, in order not only to teach that the wages, which are assuredly comparable with a debt and a reward, are repayment of punishment and death, but to establish eternal life in grace alone. In formulating this contrast between gift and wage, grace and debt, Origen is implying that the initiative in bestowing salvation ultimately rests with God alone, whose capital precedes our efforts. Thus, his earlier insistence on the necessity of human merit must presuppose the more fundamental necessity of divine grace. And uh, you know, so that's how he justifies, how Sheck justifies agreeing with, or possibly agreeing with Ver Feli that Origen's uh, idea of merit, the relationship between merits and grace is the same as Augustine's. But to say he denies that they receive grace as a merit because justification occurs by faith without works of the law, uh, that's, if we, if we, we just have to receive this sentence with a lot of qualifications and caveats and asterisks. So what about the next sentence? What about, he further details Clement's teachings. The human desire cannot produce salvation, compare John 1, 12 through 13, but God's word invites an individual who freely responds to grace. So for this, we will turn to the cited, the two places that are cited. The first one is uh, First Principles 3, 1, 12. That's the third book, first chapter, 12th section. As you can see, he's citing the, using the Greek name. So he is citing the Greek version of First Principles, book three, chapter one. They're, both versions are extant. And then also his book against Celsus, we'll come to that afterwards. So first considering the, let me add this to the stream. Oh, by the way, the background here is Origen teaching his students. Unfortunately, you can't see much of it. You can't even see Origen in some of these views, but that's that's what this is. So I, I pre uh, on the page, you should be able to see the first principles, book three, chapter one, section 12. You can see the Latin is much more extensive than the Greek. As best I could tell, the the first part of the first uh, of the first part of the section it, it tracks fairly close to the Greek, and then there's a, a large additional amount that follows the same pattern as Origen in terms of providing some additional arguments from Scripture, but doesn't have a corresponding section in the Greek. And here, I'll read the, I'll read the Greek section. I'm not going to read the Latin, just in the interest of time and so forth. 
But since the narratives are slow to secure ascent and are considered to be forced, let us see from the prophetical declarations also what those persons say who, although they have experienced the great kindness of God, have not lived virtuously, but have afterwards sinned. Why, O Lord, hast thou made us to err from thy ways? Why hast thou hardened our heart so as not to fear thy name? Return for thy servant's sake, for the tribes of thine inheritance, that we may inherit a small portion of thy holy mountain. And in Jeremiah, thou hast deceived me, O Lord, and I was deceived. Thou wert strong, and thou didst prevail. For the expression, why hast thou hardened our heart so as not to fear thy name, uttered by those who are begging to receive mercy, is in its nature as follows. Why hast thou spared us so long, not visiting us because of our sins, but deserting us, until our transgressions come to a height. And then the second part of the session 12, you can see is a lot more similar between the Latin and the Greek, but again, I'll focus on the Greek side um, until we come to the very end, but I'll focus on the Greek side first. So it's now he leaves the greater part of men unpunished, both in order that the habits of each one may be examined so far as it depends upon ourselves in that the virtuous may be made manifest in consequence of the test applied, while the others, not escaping notice from God, for he knows all things before they exist, but from the rational creation and themselves, may afterwards obtain the means of cure, seeing that they would not have known the benefit had they not condemned themselves. It is of advantage to each one if he, that he perceive his own peculiar nature and the grace of God, for he who does not perceive his own weakness and the divine favor, although he receive a benefit, yet not having made trial of himself, nor having condemned himself, will imagine that the benefit conferred upon him by the grace of heaven is his own doing. And this imagination, imagination producing also vanity, will be the cause of a downfall, which we conceive was the case with the devil, who attributed to himself the priority which he possessed when in a state of sinlessness. Oh, I apologize. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and everyone that humbles himself shall be exalted. And observe that for this reason divine things have been concealed from the wise and prudent in order, as says the apostle, that no flesh should glory in the presence of God. And they have been revealed to babes, to, who, to those who after childhood have come to better things, and who remember that it is not so much from their own effort as by the unspeakable goodness of God that they have reached the greatest possible extent of blessedness. And uh, here I note that in the Latin version, it says, uh, the, to those, namely, who, after they have become infants and little children, i.e. have returned to the humility and simplicity of children, then make progress, and on arriving at perfection, remember that they have obtained their state of happiness, not by their own merits, but by the grace and compassion of God. So, if the English translation of the Greek is accurate here, it is not so much from their own effort as by the unspeakable goodness of God that they have reached the greatest possible extent of blessedness. If that's accurate, then this is not altogether a rejection of merit, unfortunately. We would like it to be. And this Latin 
seems to be smoothing it by saying not by their own merits and not 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 just not so much from their own effort but it does seem to be a smooth out reading if indeed the english translation of the greek here is accurate however i notice there is no mention about clement here it's not talk it it's Clement isn't even mentioned. I don't know what he means by human desire cannot produce salvation. I'm referring back now to the book. <clears throat> so there's no mention here of Clement. There's human desire cannot produce salvation. That doesn't seem to be directly addressed. And then he says, but God's word invites an individual who freely responds to grace. Well, there's a general comment about a response to grace, but in terms of invitation or not an invitation, there's the threats of punishment. It's not, not a very close match, but at least there is reference to the grace of God. And I assume that it's this portion it's actually totally unclear which portion of section 12 in the Greek he has in mind. But my best guess is this, because of the similar translation of this goodness of God as grace. Uh, let's can jump onward, though, to, uh, again, Celsius' book, not Celsius. I'm tempted to say that. He's not pro-Fahrenheit. This is against somebody named Celsus. And in this text, origin is, apologize for the small font size. It says, if Celsus were to ask us how we think we know God and how we shall be saved by him, we would answer, that the word of God, which entered into those who seek him, or who accepts him when he appears, is able to make known and to reveal the Father, who was not seen by anyone before the appearance of the word. And who else is able to save and conduct the soul of man to the God of all things, save the God the word, who, being in the beginning with God, became flesh for the sake of those who had cleaved to the flesh, and had become as flesh, that he might be received to those who could not behold him, inasmuch as he was the word, and was with God, and was God. And discoursing in human form, and announcing himself as flesh, he calls to himself those who are flesh, that he may in the first place cause them to be transformed, according to the word that was made flesh, and afterwards may lead them upwards to behold him, as he was before he became flesh, so that they, receiving the benefit and ascending from their great introduction to him, which was according to the flesh, say, even if we know, even if we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more. Therefore he became flesh, and having become flesh, he tabernacled among us, not dwelling without us, and after tabernacling and dwelling within us, he did not continue in the form in which he presented himself first, 
but caused us to ascend to the lofty mountain of his word <coughs> and showed us his own glorious form and the splendor of his garments and not his own form alone, but that also of the spiritual law, which is Moses, seen in glory along with Jesus. He showed to us, moreover, all prophecy, which did not perish even after his incarnation, but was received up into heaven, and whose symbol was Elijah. And he who beheld these things could say, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Celsus then has exhibited considerable ignorance in the imaginary answer to his question, which he puts into our mouth. How can we think we know God? And how we know we shall be saved by him? For our answer is what we have just stated. So coming back to the book, what Origen's answer to Celsus was, was a summary of John's gospel. If you recognize a lot of the language there is very Johannine. So he makes comments like the word was with God and the word was God from John one. He talks about the Mount of Transfiguration. He talks about the way of salvation. And the way he, he, the way he discuss, discusses that he doesn't actually speak here about an invitation. What he actually says is, he says this. If he was going to ask us, we would answer that the word of God, which entered into those who seek him or who accept him when he appears, is able to make known and to reveal the Father who was not seen before the appearance of the world. And who else is able to save and conduct the soul of man to the God of all things, except God the Word, who did various things, as we discussed. And it says, became flesh for the sake of those who had cleaved to the flesh, and it would become as flesh. So Christ became flesh for, uh, for, the, for sinners, for people who had become like flesh. That's how Origen sees that. So that he could be received by those who could not behold him because he was the word and was with God and was God. He calls to himself those who are flesh. Uh, that's the closest point there to invitation. He calls to himself those who are flesh that he might cause them to be transformed according to the word that was made flesh. Now, the interesting thing is whether... Origen views this call as efficacious or inefficacious. He links this call to a transformation and then uh, a leading upwards to behold him. So perhaps, perhaps this is... Uh, Perhaps it's fair to say this, he invites an individual who freely responds to his grace. Perhaps that's fair, but there's quite a lot more detail in here. And he doesn't mention anything deprecating human desire here. So it, to the extent we're willing to grant 
this invitation idea, we also have to throw out the other part. You know, in the next section, uh, God willing, we'll we'll dig more into the commentary on Romans, uh, and we'll come back to this discussion of uh, what's shown here on the screen. We'll come, God willing, we'll come to the paragraph dealing with origin distinguishes grace from rewards, and eventually we'll come back to Sheck where he argues with Sheck. So we'll, we'll discuss that in a moment. But Sheck, keep in mind, is the translator for this commentary on Romans. And uh, we may have an, an opportunity to address, maybe we'll be able to get through all four of these sections, but we'll try our best to get through at least the two on, on Romans next time kind of keep this Romans themes going. So thanks to everybody who has been watching, who has been uh, commenting so far, following along. It's not an easy subject to go through. And the the value of historical theology has its limits, but it is, it is interesting to dig into origin, see what he actually has to say, consider his points, his arguments, what he's arguing against, what he's arguing in favor of. And it's valuable to compare that to how he's being characterized by Dr. Wilson in this chapter so far. And as a reminder, to anyone who has already struggled through this far and is wondering why are we doing this, the, one of our reasons for doing this is that Dr. Wilson has previously disparaged his critics, and in one critic in particular, who had posted some negative review of his material and claimed that, well, that man hasn't read this book. So we will be going through this section as an illustration or an example of some of the problems in the book. And we hope that Dr. Wilson will not be so brash as to assert that we haven't read his book when we have carefully scrutinized each sentence of each page in, in the section that we're responding to. So I'm looking quickly to see if there are any Twitter comments. I don't usually check the Twitter comments, but just in case, I see some Twitter notifications have come in, uh, but not particularly relevant to this discussion. So I look forward to uh, future segments, and thank you again for everyone who's been watching so far.